Hello and welcome everyone to the third episode of the Inspiring People's podcast series from the Environmental Funders Network. Inspiring People podcasts is a series to highlight the vital role of philanthropy in solving environmental and climate issues. On this podcast series, you'll hear from experienced environmental philanthropists and the people they find inspiring about a topic they fund and are passionate about. The Environmental Funders Network is a UK-based network of foundations, family offices, and individual donors supporting environmental causes. The aim of EFN is to increase the amount of financial support for environmental causes and to improve, improve its overall effectiveness. My name is Christina Johansson, and I am the founder of Sulberga Foundation, a family foundation based in the UK that supports transformative social movements that are working to advance social justice and sustainability for all communities. We fund organizations that are working at the intersection of gender and climate justice and help activists take on the world's most pressing environmental and social justice challenges. On today's episode, I'm delighted to be here with three truly incredible leaders working with youth and climate movements. And we will delve deeper into how young people and in particular girls and young women are tackling the climate crisis in Southern Africa and why it's so important to support their critical work. So I came to funding the climate justice movement because it's something that I personally knew very well. I was a youth climate activist myself, and whilst I was in school, I was involved in activism to get my university to divest from the fossil fuel industry, and it was a hugely transformational experience for me. We had a sign that said, divestment is a tactic and climate justice is the goal. And it was during this activism campaign that I was politicized in understanding the interconnections between social injustice and climate change and saw firsthand the power of social movements in creating real change. We only have a short time to reduce global warming pollution. And if we don't, our societies will be transformed by the most catastrophic impacts of climate change and the window of time to make a change is coming to a close. And so we have to take unprecedented action. We need mobilizations and advocacy and sustained public engagement, and we need everybody. And especially we need those who are most affected by the climate crisis. And yet because of systemic discrimination, they are often overlooked by the philanthropic community. Young people, indigenous people, people of color and women are severely underfunded. As we know from the previous podcast, less than 2% of philanthropy goes to environmental causes, but even less than that goes to the community level groups. Though, yet those are the ones that are having an outsized impact on confronting the root causes of, climate, of the climate crisis and are the ones with the solutions to build a sustainable future. And we've seen that authentic social movements have always been led by those in the front line of the crisis. In the, in the case of the climate crisis, it's indigenous people, it's communities of color, it's low income communities that are the most intimately familiar with the crisis. And they're the ones that describe the crisis in the clearest terms and also point us in the direction for solutions. I believe this is where philanthropy has a critical role to play. At its best, it can put the power in empowerment and resource grassroots, le grassroots leadership. And so today we're going to be speaking to three people, three amazing people who will tell us all about how they're doing exactly that. So I'm gonna invite them to introduce themselves. Um, so if you could introduce yourself, share who you are, where you're based in the world and what you see outside your window today. Hilma, Hilma can you start? Um, my name is Hilma Angula, one of Global Green Grants Next Generation Climate Board member. I am based in Windhoek, Namibia. And outside my window, I see children playing on the, on the ground and enjoying themselves. Amazing. Shamiso, how about you? 
Hello, everyone. My name is Shamiso Winetimpara, and I'm based in Zimbabwe. What I see outside my window is buildings, electric cables, and a little bit of trees because I'm in the urban area. Enjoy. Um, hello, everyone. I'm Joy Montali. I'm from Malawi. Um, what I see outside my window is trees and plants. They're all green, so it's really a nice environment. Amazing. We've got a really uh, diverse like places in the world here today. Um, and outside my window, I'm currently in Sweden in the countryside. And um, I have some, uh, my a little garden where I've been learning during uh, this lockdown period how to uh, grow my own vegetables and spinach. And we've just picked out some potatoes this morning. So it's been a uh, really lovely um, autumn, beginning of the autumn season. Um, so I'd love to start to hear all, all about um, the different organizations that you work with. So maybe you could talk, each of you could introduce the environmental context in your country. Um, my country, Namibia, is the driest in sub-Saharan Africa, and we are impacted or vulnerable to climate change. For the past four years, for example, we have experienced harsh uh, drought conditions, causing failed crop production, killing livestock, and significantly impacting people's livelihoods, and especially the vulnerable groups, including women and children. As a, I'm, a globe, I'm a board member of the Next Generation Climate Board, and we are supporting youth groups who are at the front, forefront and often bearing the brand of climate impact, and therefore finding solutions that are, that are making sense for their communities. That sounds wonderful. I'm excited to hear more about the Next Generation Climate Board. Um, before we go start that, I would love to hear, Shimiso, if you could introduce the environmental context in your country. Okay. Um, I, I work for an organization that is called Environmental Body Zimbabwe, which is a nonprofit organization that promotes sustainable use of forest resources. Um, Zimbabwe, like most uh, developing countries, has a primary industry-based economy where resources are exploited for economic growth. And uh, these, they mostly come from natural resources such as forests and minerals. Uh, exploitation of forest resources is practiced at both community level to meet domestic needs of the community, such as firewood, uh, fruits, uh, medicines, and it's also done at a larger scale or commercial level for agriculture, um, infrastructure development, settlement development, and selective logging. Um, deforestation has been happening in Zimbabwe since time immemorial, and I guess it's, uh, it has been happening the world over. But in Zimbabwe, it was later accelerated by the land reform or the fast track land reform that took place in, uh, 2000, and in 2000 up to around 2010. Deforestation was so bad that by 2005, Zimbabwe had made it to the top 10 deforesting countries in the whole world. Rapid deforestation with no major effort to plant trees and also climate change effects like uh, droughts, uh, sometimes floods, uh, has had a terrible effect on Zimbabwean forests the forests have actually failed to rejuvenate on their own. Uh, and uh, you'll find that when this happens, degradation affects women because it means now they spend more time looking for water. They have to walk long distances to look for firewood. And this leaves them with no time to do any other uh, economic uh, activities. 
So you find that then the forests, they link to social issues and they also link to poverty and the economic status of most women, especially in the rural communities in Zimbabwe. Yeah, that, that sounds really, uh, really important work that you guys are doing to stop that. Joy, can you tell us about the environmental context in your country? Okay, so um, in Malawi, we have, um, we have been hit by floods and um, drought for the past three, three to five years. And so um, with the gender roles that girls and young women have in the environment, they have to fetch water and they have to hook for firewood in faraway places. It leaves them more time, as Shami used to say, to actually engage in um, social issues and also developmental activities. And so instead of finding women and girls actually coming up with climate change adaptation activities, you find that it's all men and women are not included. So uh, at Green Girls Platform, which is the organization I, I work at, we're trying to get more women and girls involved in climate change adaptation talks where they can be able to be the center of the conversation and they can be able to take part in uh, coming up with adaptation strategies that are tailor-made for them and also for their uh, communities. And also to have more women representing the countries at negotiations so that we can have a whole um, we can have more women included and a country where women are actually taking um, a front row seat in coming up with climate change adaptation strategies. It's so important to hear the way, the way that women and girls can take a leadership role in this. Um, Hilma, can you tell us a little bit about the Next Generation Climate Board and their approach to supporting youth activists and group like Shamisos and Joys that we've heard about and why small grants can be so helpful? Um, as a board member of youth activists spread across five global regions, our approach is truly global. We are guided by a strategy, but more importantly, our fundamental core values and principles, which is primarily honesty and trust. Therefore, we reach out to groups known to us, referrals from past grantees or trusted sources. We support frontline youth groups, including young women and girls, to find solutions to climate impacts in their communities. We emphasize locally driven solutions because we believe those who are at the brand and at the forefront of climate injustices have the necessary solutions. It is especially important to focus on youth and especially young girls and women whom we know have been, dis have been or are disproportionately impacted by climate change and are living the climate injustices every day of their lives, and often, unfortunately, the ones who are least funded. Small grants do help, and sometimes in a big way. It can be the difference between an unabated climate injustice and a solution. Youth groups in particular, who are often not funded or underfunded, could mean the beginning of a movement. They could mean the beginning of young people's voices coming to the forefront and young people's voices being incorporated in key decision making and in platforms that truly are going to change the way our world works. The, the one situation that we're seeing is the climate movement at the 21 um, Paris Agreement, for example. We have seen how small grants were able to go a long way in motivating young people to speak up, in motivating intercontinental, um, a breaking of intercontinental challenges, really trying to embrace cross-generational, cross-cultural learning. And we have seen young women and girls speaking in places that were not previously able to, places and in situations that were previously considered a taboo. So yes, 
small grants do help and they are sometimes the one situation and the one solution that is required in, in places and in challenges that sometimes nobody is even willing to find or those who have the money are not able to engage in because they feel this young group is inexperienced and therefore how do we put money in there or this money that we are giving is too significant it's too it's a lot we cannot give it to a group that is that is not experienced and that is why we give small grants to youth groups and especially women and, and girls who are able to then find solutions tailor-made to their situations tailor-made to the problems that they are facing Shamiso and Joy, can you tell us more about the amazing work that your two organizations are doing and how funding has been so critical to this work? And Shamiso, you could go first. Um, in response to massive deforestation and degradation in Zimbabwe, uh, as an organization, we saw a gap or an opportunity to make a difference in the communities. Uh, this is being done by participating in uh, uh, reforestation activities. Uh, EBZX activities include raising tree nurseries, uh, tree planting, capacity building, uh, where we teach communities about uh, how to uh, make, a, uh, make a living out of forest uh, through the promotion of uh, non-timber non products, and also by education and awareness. Those are some of the activities that we do. Um, we also have a, a, what, uh, a Catch Them Young project. Uh, through this Catch Them Young project, our organization has a focus on teaching children the importance of sustainable uh, environmental management with a view to create adults who are environmentally sensitive and also custodians of the environment. We just hope that whatever we teach them or any reforestation work we teach them at school, they will share what they learn with their communities or their families at back, back at home. Uh, we, since 2013, up to date, we, we are working with 20 schools in reforestation activities, and this has seen more than 10,000 trees uh, being planted uh, in, uh, in those 20 trees. Um, also, uh, a further activity or a further key objective to this organization is the empowerment of women and girls through reforestation. Uh, we just thought that by bringing forests closer to their communities, uh, girls and women are able to do their daily chores more quickly. This is like looking for water, looking for firewood, so that they have more uh, time to do other economic activities. And, um, you, you know, some of these activities that we have introduced for women are activities such as beekeeping, uh, also the handcraft project, whereby we are creating female independence and also reducing poverty at a household level. Uh, the women we work with under the handcraft project are making jewelry, bags, backpacks, and we help them by marketing the products both locally and, uh, and abroad. Um, uh, funding uh, in our context has helped our organization to expand our project geographically. Uh, when we started in 2013, uh, we were only working in a very small community in Marange. I think we, we are reaching like less than a thousand people. But uh, up to today, we, have, we are now working in four provinces in Zimbabwe, and uh, that means we have reached over 30,000 or even up to 50,000 people. Uh, in 2007, we constructed a nursery from the funding we got. Uh, and uh, now the nursery has a capacity of over 20,000 trees. And this has increased the number of trees we need for the restoration activities. 
And also having a nursery has helped us to actually raise a healthy um, trees that actually survive better at, an, at the outplanting area. Um, we also now have a website and social media pages that also uh, we funded from the money that we, we, that we got or from the funding that we got. And uh, this has seen our project being supported by individuals in Zimbabwe and abroad. It actually has uh, made us more visible. For example, um, I had an opportunity to be one of the panelists for the Steka lecture series that is done at Oregon State University each year. I was one of the panelists today, sorry, this year. And this came from uh, our website being visible. Uh, in addition to that, I also was a, a participant for the Pathways Women in Conservation Leadership Training that was held in Kenya, which also came from, our, from us being visible uh, at our social pages. Thank you. Wow, you are so incredible and doing so much critical work. Um, I'm looking forward to getting more into the incredible work you're doing. Um, but we'd love to hear, Joy, if you could tell us a little bit more about the Green Girls platform and how funding has helped this critical work. Okay, so um, at the Green Girls platform, we're majorly working on capacity building. We want to teach girls and young women about climate change and what climate change is, what are the impacts of climate change and how they can be able to adapt to the effects of climate change. And so we host workshops where we bring girls together and teach them about climate change and then they have to go on and teach other girls and we see how that is working. And also work on promoting climate justice. That's through policy advocacy and also talking to um, our leaders about climate change and how women can be able to take part in climate change um, talks and also be the center of the uh, conversations that, that take place in, um, in areas where policies are formulated. And also we work on um, raising awareness on sexual reproductive health rights and other rights related to, in relation to climate change, since we can't work alone on climate change when we're working with girls and young women. And also we work on um, providing leadership training and uh, skills to young women and girls, since we do not have more leaders in climate change sectors, we try to uh, empower more women with leadership skills and training so that they can be able to take up spaces, they can be able to be confident enough to lead other women in our climate change related talks. And so the funding from Green, uh, Green, Global Green Grants Fund helped us because when we were starting, we were only 30 girls. Um, I was the oldest in the group. So. And then when we got the funding, they were our first funder, they gave us um, the confidence that we were actually on the right path and we were doing the right thing. So we started um, doing um, workshops in primary schools and secondary schools, where we actually formulated six climate justice clubs in six primary schools and 10 in secondary schools. And then there we actually came up with a membership that we didn't know we would have by now. And then we started with 10 members in each school and then they were like, no, our friends want to join. And then we had to grow a larger membership. And now from our primary schools and secondary schools together, we have at least 1,000 members. And plus the 30 that was initially there. And now we have uh, other women, young women who joined uh, after Green Forum that we, that we conducted after the funding from the Global Green, Green Grants Fund. And now we have a membership of 3,000 members, which we initially didn't have. So that was all because of the funding that we got. And also, um, we managed to actually host a meeting, a, a conference with um, the Environmental Affairs Department in Malawi and the Ministry of Natural Resources and um, Management so that we could talk about how women and girls can be included in this, uh, in the climate change agenda and also how they can be able to be included in the negotiations. 
And so we had that conference and after that we were approached by the um, ministry that they wanted to actually include us, they wanted us to be part of the conversations and so they gave us space at the um, Natural Resources Committee on, on the Parliamentary Committee on Natural Resources. And so I have been going there, we exchange with the members, so we go there and we actually listen to what, they're about, or what they talk about and we are pitching on what we think can be done and the changes we see uh, that, they, that they can be put in place. And so that was all because of the funding that we got. If we didn't have that funding, we wouldn't have had the confidence to actually take up spaces that we would be there. And also, um, the, with the funding, we've been able to get recognition from the Within for Girls Collective. We were given an award last year for the best uh, upcoming grassroots um, organization in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and that was all because of the funding. So, so far, it has opened doors for us that we didn't know we would have, and it has given us the membership that we didn't know we would have. And now we have more members in Malawi that we didn't know we would have by now. And more girls and women are actually interested in coming up with climate change uh, adaptation strategies that can be able to help them and also help their fellow communities. Like now we have other women that are actually focusing on green entrepreneurship, making um, making um, bags that are uh, reusable and others are trying to come up with packaging materials from chicken feathers. So all that is because of the, the knowledge that they have that we're actually able to give them through the funding. That's really, really inspiring. Um, wow. Well, despite the fact that we know that women and girls are most impacted by climate change, they are rarely included in the decision-making process um, that seeks to find the solutions, as you've both just mentioned. So we know that, and we also know that funding going out in the world right now, less than you know, two, two cents of every dollar goes to girls. So um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, what difference girl leadership can really make. And Shamisa, maybe you could share about that. Um, okay, like I said earlier, that girls are the most, girls and women are the most affected by um, land degradation. Is the, uh, what they're doing their day-to-day -day chores of looking for firewood, looking for water, looking for food. Um, I would like to say that if girls are given the space to become uh, leaders, they are able to make more informed decisions based on their day-to-day -day, um, experiences. Um, you find that, okay, I think it's still the world over that uh, even women, they still occupy a very small space politically or even in the environment uh, in top, uh, top positions. There's still that um, the gender disparity in, uh, in leadership positions. Uh, that we need as women to keep pushing, to keep advocating so that we have space. We are the women who are in touch with the environment every day. We need to be there. We need to be on the same table with the decision makers so that we make decisions that suit us, so we make decisions that will make life easy for us. I absolutely agree. Um, and Hilma, what outcomes have you seen with youth-led solutions compared with older generations? Um, I've seen young people breaking through intercontinental barriers and embracing cross-cultural and intergenerational learning and sharing. I've also seen local solutions, uh, people, young people embracing local solutions, but global impact. I have also seen young people successfully using innovative tools, including media, including arts and crafts to put the message across, sometimes in a simple, but in a very impactful way. So their capability to work even harder 
knowing that they have a point to prove, knowing that they are volunteering, knowing that they have um, no access to bigger donor funding, knowing that most of the donors are not trusting them, they're not trusting to put money in them, they work even harder in bringing solutions that are tailor-made to their problems. And for, for, for the older groups, I think they have also been impactful and I think we should um, acknowledge that. But I think sometimes for them, especially now that they have already made their name, that they have no point to prove that, that they, it's now about, sometimes it's about survival for them and their organizations. And therefore you will find that they will not, for example, be able to accept a small grant to do certain activities because they are not at the point of volunteering. So we are seeing that young people come in, we come in like beehives and we are able to break through barriers that were previously not being able to. We are able to do things differently. And it is truly, truly inspirational and encouraging to see that a young person in Namibia can give a small grant to a young person in Malawi, and they are able to testify to what was able to come out. So it is truly, truly inspiring. And the fact that we are truly able to embrace cross-cultural, cross-generational, intercontinental barriers, that is one thing and one um, impact that I have seen that all the generations were just not able to. And perhaps they'll never be able to because they have um, different agendas and they have different um, 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 forms of what they are looking for now. And they're, most of them are not willing to volunteer because perhaps they already feel that they put in the sweat and the tears, but for young people, we truly are. And especially in the climate movement, we have been able to break grounds. We have been able to push uh, buttons that were thought not possible. We have been able to put up uh, our leaders or on places that they never thought they would be. In negotiations, we are able to come to the forefront. We are able to shut down um, um, destructives, extractives. As young as we may be, as inexperienced as we may be, we come in with passion and we come in with drive and we come in with an unprecedented level of energy that the older groups are not perhaps able to match. Yeah, that is absolutely true. We've definitely seen the power of youth uh, movements in the last year and how they've really put uh, climate justice on the map and at the center. Um, and talking about climate justice, Joy, I, um, the word climate justice has definitely become more central in the climate movement in the, pre in the previous years. And I was curious, what does climate justice uh, and a climate justice approach mean for you? And why is the justice part of climate so important? For us, the climate justice approach means taking into account the burdens that girls share in the environment and also their gender roles in the community. Um, for example, young women and girls take up 60% in the agricultural sector, which is rent fed. So if we don't have rent that year, that means we won't have food on the table. So um, taking into account the burdens that girls share and then making sure that everybody in the community um, is, is being affected by climate change affects the same way means, um, is also climate justice to us. But also it means safeguarding the rights of the girls and young women in relation to climate change. For example, their right to education, their right to food, their right to a healthy life is affected by uh, different effects of climate change. Um, when girls go out to fetch water in, in faraway places when they're coming back, most of them get raped, others get beaten up and others miss school. And hence they don't have the right to education, they don't have the right to um, 
safe water or even safe uh, or even their safety is, is at risk. So us bringing in the climate change talks to them and actually um, building their capacity on climate change knowledge and making sure that they understand what climate change is where they can be able to know that this is happening because of this makes us feel that we have actually given them the knowledge that they can, that can be able to equip them with the right skills to come up with telemedicine solutions for them. So giving them the knowledge means that we're giving them access to knowledge, we're giving them access to actually coming up with solutions that they can be able to bring out and also make sure that they are protected from climate change effects. And so um, when we go out and we give them knowledge, we give them skills, we have actually empowered them and they're at the same level as um, the girls in the urban areas or the women in urban areas or the men that are in the communities and they can be able to adapt to the effects of climate change without feeling uh, inferior or even lower than anyone else. When they are all fe uh, feeling the effects of climate change fairly and e equally, then we have, um, we are bringing in the just approach to climate change. So that means that's what climate justice means to us. Amazing. Um, looking at the connection within the work that you do, what is the link between sexual and reproductive rights, menstrual hygiene, and climate work? And can you give some examples? Uh, Shamisa, can you share first? Okay. Um, okay. We have noticed that most girls miss school during their menstrual cycles. And uh, others, for cultural reasons, girls don't attend schools at all. Uh, I would like to, to give an example that in Zimbabwe, you'll find that uh, if, uh, if, if the head of the family or a mother or a, a, a father passes on and there are two kids or two genders of children in that household, you'll find that the girl child is likely to take over the role of a mother in that family and uh, she automatically misses school or she's not sent to school because of that. It doesn't matter whether there's a boy who is even way, way older than the girl, but that girl takes the role of a parent, that family missing school. Also, the social, the, another social aspect of this is, uh, for example, if there's school fees for one child, you'll find that a boy child is likely to be sent to school instead of a girl child. So we have noticed that when you're conducting reforestation activities, at schools, we tend to have fewer girls uh, compared to boys. We have more boys participating because already the schools have more, for if more girls, we have more boys. But even in some instances where you find that boys, oh, girls, uh, uh, we have more girls in schools. Girls, when we do reforestation activities, which normally happens after school hours, you'll find that girls quickly rush back home because they have to look for firewood, they have to look for water. Boys stay at school and participate in restoration activities. Uh, so to solve this, we have started supplying girls with menstrual hygiene wear as a way of keeping them in school. Uh, also, uh, we have uh, collaborated with uh, a sister organization called uh, Impact um, Trust, whereby every girl gets a tree with each monthly supply of uh, sanitary wear or sanitary pads. That way, girls want school, miss school because of, uh, uh, of, of, of menstrual cycles. Uh, in addition to that, we also run a small scholarship project that mostly support girls. You'll find that most, if a parent decides to say, no, I'm going to send my boy child and not a girl child, then that girl stays at home. But if the girl has a scholarship, then she will be able to also attend schools. 
Um, also, we have noticed that during community activities, because this disparity is not only limited to schools, uh, we find that when you do community outreaches like tree planting activities and workshops, less women participate uh, because they are usually tied up with, uh, you know, household chores. I'm, uh, and uh, I'm glad uh, the last uh, funding we got from Gaga, it was specifically for women. It was a gender, it was a gender, you know, funding. And we managed to push women issues. We managed to have more women participate in workshops, uh, in uh, uh, tree planting activities. And I, I just think men at the core of this, they actually think they are the ones who are supposed to go for workshops. They are the ones who are supposed to be taught stuff. I remember after uh, a beekeeping workshop that we did in Marange, men came to our office to say, how come we, you had more than 80% of women in that workshop instead of vice versa? Because we are the men. We are the first people to get information before women do. We are the ones who will go back home and teach women. So you see that men still think they're the ones who are supposed to, you know, kind of be at the forefront. They rather attend the workshop and teach their wives at home or their sisters at home, but they don't want a situation whereby women actually go to workshops and come back and teach them what they would have learned at workshops. Thank you. Yeah, you're highlighting how incredibly important it is to amplify girls' voices and how necessary they are to uh, make sure they're involved in these in these solutions and that they um, that they're at the decision making tables and and that we look at the barriers that are preventing them from being there. Um, and uh, uh, Joy, do you want to share a little bit of of your of, of examples that you you do in your work between the intersections of sexual and reproductive rights and climate work? Um, for sexual reproductive health rights, um, we work in schools mainly. So when you go to a school and we have um, 30 girls this month. When you go back the other month, you find that there are only 20 girls. And the other month, 15, and the number goes lower and lower. And so we started finding out why girls were not coming into um, the meetings. And one of them was like, um, mostly it's because we're, uh, we're, on our, we're on our menstrual cycle, so we don't come to school. It's like, so you don't come to school because you're menstruating. And they're like, yes. Yeah. So we started coming up with solutions that can be able to help them to still attend the meetings even during the menstrual cycle. And then we found out that most girls don't know about their sexual reproductive health rights. So instead of doing climate work, then we started doing sexual reproductive health rights awareness campaigns where they would be able to know that this is what you're supposed to do and this is not what you're supposed to do. And some girls didn't actually know that they were being violated or, 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 and all that. So we started talking to them about what gender-based violence looks like in relation to their sexual reproductive health rights. And then after doing that, we found that our membership started increasing. And then the girls were more interested in doing climate work because they now have the access to sexual reproductive health rights and they feel protected and they feel safe so they can be able to take, uh, to take part in climate work. But when they, when they were not in the first place, they felt threatened. They felt they didn't deserve to be in the rooms. And when they're menstruating, they didn't even actually attend school. And now we have a more membership and other girls are actually leaving their schools to come to the schools that we're actually engaging girls and so they can be able to have access to um, the sanitary pads that we distribute and the school uniforms that we give out. So now it's actually bringing in more girls to, um, to actually know their rights and also have um, their menstrual hygiene in the, in the same places where they're learning about climate change work. So it's really good now. 
That's, um, yeah, thank you both for um, giving some examples and making it clear why it's so important to think about how uh, gender is intersecting with climate change and what barriers uh, prevents women and girls from engaging in, in climate solutions. Um, so I wanted to ask you both, what do youth activists need from funders? And Joy, can you share first? Um, as a youth activist, I feel we need to be mentored and to be coached by our, by the funders, because usually we come into the, we come into the sector and we have less knowledge. We are not experienced enough. So I would like to be coached. We'd like to be mentored. Give us somebody to talk to so that we can be able to have the same knowledge as the funders, and we can be able to complement each other's efforts. And also, um, uh, usually when we are funded. You, most funders just leave you there and you're like, oh, okay, we're giving them the money and they don't follow up on what you're doing. But then when you follow up, it actually gives you the courage that, oh, okay, they're actually interested in our work and we're actually complimenting them. So then you start working in, in tandem with each other. And also um, we need to be collaborate. We need to have collaborations and also um, to be able to be referred to other organizations like what Global Green Grants Fund did with us and Youth and for Girls Collective. And now we have the, we have the exposure, we're connected to more organizations because of that funding. Um, and also I think there needs to be that dialogue between the funders and the youth, uh, youth networks that they're trying to fund to actually get to each other and to actually understand what we're trying to achieve in the same, uh, in the same place. And also I think the last thing that we need is trust to actually be trusted by funders that, okay, we're giving them this amount of money and this is what they're going to do. To actually believe that even if they're a little experienced, we can be able to come up with impacts that can influence change in different areas and bring out the best in the young people and also to actually um, um, advance the climate change agenda. So I think that's what we need from the funders. Yeah, I absolutely hear you. Um, I've as a funder who's been in this space for two years, I think one of the areas that seems to me the most critical for funders to learn is trust and, and having more trust-based relationships with grantee and grantee partners. Um, so thank you for raising that point. And um, Shamisa, what, what do you think youth activists needs from funders? Um, I, I also add to what Joy had said, or really just to say what Joy has said is the same thing that we would uh, want to from, you know, from our funders to be mentored and to be coached. I will always talk from my experience that uh, when I started doing reforestation work, I didn't have any background in uh, reforestation work or in, uh, you know, planting trees. I happened to be coming from a waste management background. My first degree, I did a bit of waste management. My master's, I totally went all waste management and air pollution control. But when I saw the state in my, in my community, I realized that waste management is not what I need to be doing because we don't have issues of waste in the rural area. I need to be planting trees. I didn't have any knowledge on uh, restoration work. Most of the things that we would do, some enough of them would fail because I was not um, knowledgeable. We would need to be trained also. We need to also, uh, you know, be sent to workshops or to be, you know, to be involved in even if it's the online classes about the kind of work that we do. And I think most importantly, one thing that I learned this year is uh, we, we, as a uh, environmentalists, we have all the environmental um, information that we might need, but we didn't have leadership or leadership uh, techniques. Um, this year I had an opportunity to attend the leadership uh, uh, workshop, Women in Conservation with Leadership Workshop in, in Kenya, 
that's when I learned enough things about leadership. I would know how to plant trees. I would know how to nature a tree. I would know how to, you know, manage waste. But I didn't know how to talk to staff members. I didn't know how to approach communities. I didn't know how to talk to funders. I didn't know how to, you know, I handle critical uh, conversations. Imagine there's a sexual harassment in a community or in, a, in, in, in the organization. Imagine there's, you need to uh, bring someone on board to work or to, you need to actually fire someone from the organization. All those things, we kind of don't have them because funders, they are only focusing on the conservation part and not uh, the conservation part of the organization. I uh, would also want funders to facilitate collaboration with uh, also critical uh, stakeholders. And also lastly, we need uh, help to link us to other funders and also to other uh, stakeholders that are critical to the work that we do. Thank you so much. And Hilma, do you have any thoughts on what funders can, can do to support youth activists? Um, I think what Joy and Samisha both said is important, that we have the trust, that we have the mentorship, but more importantly, I think, is that we see one another as allies and not necessarily donors who are giving the money. We are allies, we are holding hands, and in the end, what we are trying to do is come up with a solution and support those who are on the front line and having the solution. So I think we emphasize the trust, we emphasize being allies and not necessarily a relationship of donor versus grantee. I think that's what will take us further. And where we can, we should be able to link one another to different resources, be it funding in terms of money or just necessary resources that would help those whom we are working with, those whom we are giving a little bit of money to be able to truly en enhance what they are doing and the solutions that they are um, coming up with. Absolutely. Well, this has been super inspiring to hear about all the work you're all doing addressing uh, youth and girls, grassroots communities, and tackling the climate crisis. Um, I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners, um, and a big, big, big thank you to Hilma, Shamiso, and Joy for taking the time to share the incredible work you're all doing today. And thank you Global Green Grants Fund for helping organize and for the Environmental Funders Network for putting this podcast series together. To find out more about their amazing work, you can check out the links in the description and that we'll, we'll have all the links there and for you to explore further about uh, and learn more about these amazing people and their organizations. Thank you again for listening and we hope you tune in for the next episode of Inspiring People.